so uh back up what was the question what was it uh um <laughs> you stumped me um <laughs> <laughs> This is Ordinary Voices, inviting ordinary people into conversations about life and faith. I'm your host, Eric Elkin. I created this podcast to help me, a pastor, better understand people and the way they view the world. Now I'm inviting you into the conversation so together we might listen. Listen to discover expressions of hope in daily life. Guests on this show are not authorities. They're simply people willing to share with us the authenticity of their own thoughts. I try to provide guests the freedom to talk and let them determine the direction of the conversation, then reflect upon the things I heard them say. Each show, I ask you, the listener, to listen like a good camp counselor. Good camp counselors allow children to express themselves without judgment. They listen for what the camper is trying to say. People who listen tend to understand each other better, and we live in a world desperate for ears. So let's begin today's show the next generation farmer. Let's meet today's guest. I am Hans Schneckloth from Scott County, Iowa. I uh, farm corn and soybeans on roughly 2,800 acres. 2,800 acres. Where does that you put you in the in the food chain of farming small farm That's, medium i'd say that puts us towards the large end of of medium the large end of medium it just struck me as a good midwestern thing to say kind of like your children being above average but. So is that about the right size for your kind of what you guys do would you could be a little bigger or a little smaller does it matter <clears throat> yeah I, I like the size that we're at i mean it's it's a uh, it's a good workload for, especially in the fall, because um, we only have one combine. On saying just one combine needs a context. To add a new combine would probably cost between four hundred and five hundred thousand dollars. Then you'd probably need to add a second planter, which runs about three hundred to four hundred thousand dollars. So the step up to being a larger farm is a big and costly one. Well, the I mean, I'm the sixth generation operating our farm, but it, the first generation was he purchased um, 40 acres, okay. which is where my where my dad currently lives. Built the house there. It was in 1860, and he came from uh, from Germany. Worked down in the Gulf of Mexico for a couple years. Um, made his way up to St. Louis. Worked there for a couple more years, and then finally had earned enough money to, to purchase some land, and somehow settled upon, the forty acres where my dad lives, here pretty close to the Mississippi. The progress in farming technology is subtly revealed as Hans talks about the history of their farm. It took five generations for the forty-acre farm purchased in eighteen sixty become 1,000 acres, one generation to grow it from 1,000 to 2,800 acres. 
Today's farming is done on a completely different scale than previous generations. The idea for this show came in October of 2016. I was serving in a congregation in Minnesota in an area 30 years ago, surrounded by farms. We were discussing people to include in the Sunday prayers, and I said, farmers. People kind of looked at me strangely and asked, why? There are 75,000 farms in Minnesota doing $21 billion worth of business. Harvest time is a critical time for farmers. If people in Minnesota don't understand farming, how will people in New York City or Los Angeles? It made me think how disconnected we've become from the production of food. So I had this great idea. I would talk to a farmer as we headed into Thanksgiving and Christmas. We would talk about food, the production of food, and the importance of farming. Help listeners experience the classic farmer. Men and women working the soil, salt of the earth people, humble, getting your hands dirty, backbone of America kind of stuff. You know what I'm talking about. So I interviewed Hans, but he didn't play along. He wasn't saying what I wanted him to say, and I didn't know what to do with it. So, okay, like that was one of our things when we were talking about, um, you know, I sat there, I'm like, okay, it'd be fun to talk to somebody about food right before Thanksgiving. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then we did this interview, it, it was like, it wasn't, it wasn't that classic farm approach to thing. You're just like, yeah, you know, it's a business. <laughs> and you're like, you're talking about it. You're, you know, even when you're sitting there talking about that, the, the grains and the marketing part of it, it sounds more Wall Street than it does uh, Green Acres, you know. Um, I actually spent a lot of time reflecting on on your reaction to to what I said. And it, and this is not what you said, but it, it kind of made me think that I was like, it actually made me reevaluate what I what I was saying because I, I felt like maybe to a certain extent I was being dismissive of of you know the way that some people are really because some people are really passionate about it and it's hard for me to to relate to that but I sometimes feel like I dismiss that because I don't understand it so that's kind of hard to right so well, I was glad to have that time to I have I've actually thought about our conversation a lot which has been interesting so. So we re-recorded a new conversation, the one you're listening to. But still, I found myself trying to figure out what to do with it. Then I realized my problem. Hans was not fitting into my idea of a farmer, an image forged in my head more by nostalgia and propaganda than reality. I wanted a show about the reality of farming and was getting it. But I kept trying to force reality to meet my unrealistic expectations. Basically. I was listening for what I wanted to hear and not what was being said. We create images of people, we classify them, and then filter all of their words through our own image of them, without ever determining if our image is accurate. The cost is we never really understand each other because we're not listening. In this next clip, you can hear me keep trying to get Hans to fit into my image. Thankfully, he will not let me put him there. But I want you to think about the people in your life. Who do you define by an image and ask yourself, is the image accurate? Are you allowing that image to be reformed by reality? This is what it sounds like when you don't. There's a big difference between you and your dad, right? 
Oh yeah. And how you I approach mean, it. And how would you describe that difference? To well, because your dad's classic. He's, he's pretty classic, um, but he, you know, he he's a businessman too, though. I mean, he's, you know, he's uh, his line to me was he said we're always gonna or we're gonna be farmers, but we don't always have to look like farmers. You know, he, I mean, he likes to look like a like a classy guy that that uh, right. You know, this is just the business world that he's in is is the agriculture, but. Um, I think he, he, you know, he, he grew up in a different time when it was daily chores. It was a lot harder work. I mean, to be honest, you know, I mean, I have tasks throughout the year that I have to do that are, are, you know, and I probably work with my hands more than the average person working in a, in an office or something, but it's definitely not as labor intensive as, as it was when, when dad was my age, you know, I mean, it's just a, it's just a different world, but he's, you know, as much as as much as we're different, he's kind of created the business structure that I happen to be stepping into at the same time. So, but there is that, um, yeah, kind of that classic r- romantic um, connection to the land mm-hmm. and, and the and the history of farming. Would that be fair to say? Is that? Huh. <clears throat> um. Yeah, I mean, I guess you, I could see that. Um, yeah. You know what was when he got started? I think they had a little under a thousand acres, so it's it's easy to be, you know, maybe you have more of that romantic feeling when it's when it's a little more, a little smaller, tighter knit. Right. Uh, we're spread out, you know, a fair amount, but I mean, when I'm when I'm planting in the spring, I get out and and play in the dirt a little bit. I kind of, you know, I I enjoy the that process because you didn't really do a whole lot with the farm when you were in junior high and high school Mm-mm. and not in college much and then you went full board into it after college mm-hmm. and so i wonder is that something that just starts to grow on you as be as you as you grow in your relationship with this with this job in this in this field yeah i i don't know if i've ever really thought about that but yeah i mean i could see that because um yeah. So for example, I mean, dad, you know, took a, just one college course and he worked, um, during high school, he would, he would only take his, you know, the minimum classes that he needed to, and then he would work the rest of the day. And, um, I don't know if he ever, you know, I don't know if that was something that, that he wanted to do or if, um, or if grandpa, you know, forced him to do that or, or requested that he did that. Um, but when I was, when I was in school, it was never really a discussion. I mean, I just, you know, I was going to do whatever the extracurricular I wanted to do. I played tennis. I was in chorus. I played in band, um, tried out for golf, you know, whatever I, after school activities, hanging out with friends, I was, yeah, he never expected me to, to be working, um, I would help out in the fall sometimes, but I never remember feeling that pressure. And I, I think that that probably has a lot to do with why I came back because I, I don't think that I'm, if I know myself well, I don't, I don't think that I respond well to, to high pressure like that. So if there had been a lot of demand at a younger age, I think I might've said, eh, you know, I don't think that's for me. Cause I don't, I don't want to feel that. I mean, I'm tied, you know, obviously it's my livelihood, right? So I'm tied into it. I'm invested in it. But 
um, at the same time, you know, I mean, I have, I'm married, I have a one and a half year old daughter, you know, I, I, I don't want to be working 80 hours a week all year long, a couple months out of the year. Sure. But right. Hans is the next generation farmer. He's learning a model of farming forged by his father and in many ways foreign to his grandfather. It's a high technology industry, both in terms of equipment and seed. Even a family farm has a corporate structure and he's being taught a reality farmers learned coming out of the farm crisis of the 80s, adapt or die. As a result, Hans has a different point of contact with the farm than even his father did at the same age. I imagine passion has some influence in this relationship. However, I doubt his father was all that eager to give the keys to a $400,000 piece of equipment to his teenage son. But it makes me wonder, why did Hans go into farming? In reflection, I've, I've decided that I pretty much went to college to find out if there was anything else that interested me anymore. Than, than farming and I've kind of discovered that I don't know if I'm one of those I, you know people talk about their passions or you know something they're they just knew that they had to do that and I've really honestly never experienced that right but I I really enjoy farming it certainly allows me a lot of freedom you know certain times of the year to do other things that I enjoy and anything from still being on a tennis team to singing at church to traveling, you know, things like that. So, you know, but, uh, my wife always makes fun of me because I've never had it. She says, you've never had a normal job. And I'm like, well, you're right. I know, you know, I've never had, I mean, my dad was a, was a pretty tough boss for the first couple of years for sure. Cause I think I kind of needed some, a little bit of guidance. Right. And, um, but for the past five or six years or more, you know, we've been pretty good partners. We make, we, we work together well, which is, kind of hard for me to believe objectively <laughs> speaking sometimes, but I think, you know, he tends to be more stubborn, more, uh, more decisive. And I'm a little more go with the flow. I honestly, he's way more ambitious than I am. I mean, and that's one thing that always freaks me out a little bit. I literally, like we went to church and then we came home, put Millie down for a nap and Caitlin and I sat on the couch and we watched TV for like two hours while Millie napped. And then we got up and we took Millie over to my parents for them to watch her while we went to this banquet. And my dad was outside in his coveralls washing his semi on right. a Sunday afternoon. And it's like, <laughs> you know, I just, and it, as I used to, I used to just fret about that. You know, I was like, well, man, I know he's going to be doing something. I should be doing something too. And now it's just, I, I do what I need to do. You know, I, I'm never slacking on things that definitely have to get done. Um, but I just, I, I don't know what it is. You know, if he just gets bored and, but I think he just enjoys it. So I've just learned to kind of embrace the differences between us and hope that he doesn't resent me for it. And, uh, <laughs> I always, always feel, you, I would always feel guilty around your dad because like, because all your semis would be like spotless after they'd been used. Yeah. And I would come home and it was like, I, I haven't even vacuumed the carpet, you know? <laughs> 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 and I'm like, the car that I'm driving hasn't made it to the car wash yet, you know? <laughs> yeah. If you think our stuff is spotless, we toured a farm up in Lamont, Iowa. And these guys, after harvest, they dismantle their grain trailers 
clean off all the individual pieces and then put them back together. And their their cold cold storage is a a shop nicer than ours with a heated floor, and I mean, there if you found a speck of dust in there, I'd be amazed. Really, all the equipment is spotless. I don't care if it's the used stuff or or new; it's completely immaculate, like nothing I've ever seen in my entire life. I'm just like, who has that kind of, or who wants to spend that kind of time cleaning? I mean, it's just, you're never going to get that time back and it's not worth that much to keep it. I've learned to live with a compromise that way. Let's just say it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hans is a millennial and we love to pick on millennials and we pick on them because they don't fit the image we have in our heads. The image of the hard-working, nose-to-the-grindstone American identity we love. They desire meaning beyond work. Hans sees time as a valuable commodity to be managed. He wants time with his wife, his daughter, church, and a life outside the farm. But here is the second problem with my original idea. Not all corn is grown for food. I should note our conversation was recorded shortly after the once-in-a-lifetime, never-before-happened, probably-will-never-happen-again, Iowa Hawkeye decimation of the Ohio State football team. (laughs) I just had to say that. Somebody's driving through Iowa, and they look at uh, a field, and and they immediately think that's food. But mm-hmm. but not all crops go to food, do they? Like, how would you That's explain true. it? A lot of I would say a lot of corn in Iowa. Well, there's the three there's three main things: food, fuel, and fiber. Food, fuel, fiber. Okay. So food can be either direct consumption by by humans or cattle, hogs right. are fed corn and soybeans. Soybean meal is a is an additive to most feeds because it's high in protein, you know, I mean, you can make plastics from corn, you can, you know, mostly, basically anything you can do with oil, you can also do with, with corn. How big is that? Is that getting to be bigger or is it just kind of a hobby thing? I'm not sure. Some of that stuff I think is pretty niche. I think it's, yeah, more of a, you're talking about the plastics. Yeah. The plastics thing. Yeah. I think some of that stuff is more, at least my my most recent exposure with it is pretty gimmicky, just kind of a hey, look what we can do with it kind of thing. You know, I mean, I if I think if we try to move more away from fossil fuels, it might become a more you know a better option because it's as a as a plant based um, product, I think they tend to be a little more biodegradable, more not not as recyclable, I think, but more more like it'll break down in a landfill type of right right type of thing. Out of those three with the corn, what would you what would you guess the the percentages percentages of? <laughs> I probably should have looked it up. I would guess. I that... didn't know there was going to be a test, did you? <laughs> I this is how an Ohio that. State guy gets back at an Iowa fan. <laughs> I I've always looked up the multiple uses of them, but I the, the breakdown. Um, I would guess. Man, I know I know fiber is a low low percentage, maybe ten percent. But food and fuel, I think, can be pretty evenly balanced. I'm gonna say feed would be a little bit, maybe 
So let's say 50, 40, 10 or something like that. Totally, completely guessing. I have no right, idea. Right, right. <laughs> hey, you're not supposed to admit that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you don't grow the exact same thing every year, right? We grow the exact, almost the exact amount of both things every year. Soybeans and corn. I mean, those just those two, right? Right. Okay. But we our our acres get flipped. So if it was corn one year, it's it's soybeans the next year. Why is why is that? Uh, Those two crops are kind of complementary. So soybeans as a legume and and corn as a as a grass and those. I mean, biologically speaking, they just kind of complement each other because soybeans actually produce a little bit of nitrogen in the soil. And then corn, of course, is a heavy user of nitrogen. Uh, It's also just good to diversify for because there are diseases and that uh, target either corn or soybeans. And so if you can if you can skip a year you know, where there's not soybeans in the field, then it's harder for those diseases or other pests to gain a foothold. It's a lot easier for us to just be on a strict rotation. I'm fascinated by the invisible biological battle going on in the soil. Like, you drive by a field, you see something growing. Do you ever consider what those plants are adding to or taking away from the soil? Or the fact that unseen weeds and diseases are constantly mounting attacks and counterattacks on other plants and crops. This battle determines yield, and yield influences availability, and availability determines prices to the consumer. It's just fascinating. Let's take a moment for a commercial break. It's hard to believe that 2018 will be the third year of Ordinary Voices. I want to thank you for listening. I'm really excited about the coming year. This past December, I took some time to regroup and focus on interviews for the coming year. This time also helped me shape what Ordinary Voices will look like in 2018. First, there will be a continued commitment to invite you to listen to Ordinary People, to hear their blessings, challenges, and views as we search for expressions of hope in daily life. The blog will continue three days a week, focusing on that intersection of life and faith. But I also started taking the blog and turning it into a 10-minute time of prayer for busy people. If you're interested in a time of quiet reflection while commuting, check it out. Go to the website, OrdinaryVoices.org, to find all podcasts and blogs, or search for Ordinary Voices in any podcast provider. The podcast is a listener-supported show. So if you enjoy it, please consider financially supporting it by clicking the donate button on the website, ordinaryvoices.org. Now, let's resume our conversation with Hans, the next generation farmer. So there's a the voluntary nutrient reduction strategy in Iowa, trying to alleviate the the dead zone in the Gulf that has started to develop. I'm probably you or, or your listeners are familiar with that. What's a dead zone in uh... the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, the yeah. hypoxia zone. So apparently there's the, the simplified version is there's excess nutrients in the Gulf of Mexico. And supposedly it's from runoff from farm fields, mostly in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. 
According to Tulane University, the Mississippi River Basin covers 41% of the continental United States. It also contains 52% of all U.S. farms. Rain and snow wash massive amounts of nutrients, particularly nitrogen and phosphorus, into the Mississippi River, then into the Gulf of Mexico. These nutrients trigger algae blooms, which choke off oxygen in the water and make it difficult, if not impossible, for marine life to survive. The dead zone was first recorded in the 1970s, and it occurred every two or three years. It now happens every year. If nutrient pollution is not reduced, fish and shellfish may someday be permanently replaced by anaerobic bacteria. Perhaps you've noticed while listening, we are now starting to talk to Hans about his passion, and you can hear it in his voice. So, for example, I'm buying the nutrients that go on the ground for the most part. So it's not in my best interest to be losing those. And then also it's bad for uh, people that are trying to make a living off of fishing and shrimping in the Gulf of Mexico. So especially in Iowa, trying to be preemptive rather than waiting for, you know, regulations and things like that that might not actually be as effective. I went to a presentation on it. This has been probably three, four years ago. And just going from conventional tillage, which is one pass in the fall, one or two passes in the spring, and then planting to no tilling, which is no tilling, just planting right into the last year's revenue, you reduce your nutrient runoff by ninety two percent or something. Oh my like gosh. That. I would I knew it would be a I knew it would be big, but I was completely blown away by that number. I mean it, How how many people do you think practice no till in Iowa? in your region uh we're the only ones around here there may be no i shouldn't say we're the only ones but it few it's very few yeah, yeah. maybe five percent i mean i've definitely seen reduced tillage in the past couple of years you know maybe where they maybe won't do a tillage pass in the fall and then and then only do tillage in the spring which i think is definitely an improvement Hans's father started taking a no-till approach out of necessity. He didn't have the time and manpower to till, but it has become a practice, a practice Hans is most proud of about their farm. According to the United States Department of Agriculture, no-till farming is growing at a rate of 1.5% each year. Roughly 40% of farms practice a partial till, while only 10% are full no-till farms. The Department of Agriculture expects this practice to continue to grow. Especially my dad, when he first got started, he said he would have people come up to him and say, I see what you're doing is working, but I just can't stop tilling. It's like an addiction, you know. It's, just, <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's probably part of that... Uh, what uh, would you love, love affair with the land or whatever? Right. If you really, right. Love, if you really love your soil, you shouldn't till it, right? So. Right. <laughs> but you're addicted to it, so you go out there and well, it, it's just something consistent about that in human behavior that we can look at something and we know it's effective, uh-huh. but still choose not to do it. Right. Uh, just because we like the repetition of what we did. Right. It could be just I like being in the tractor. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's probably therapeutic. I'm sure that it 
you know, we've, we've had to fix things here and there where I've, where I've run a tillage tool of some kind. I mean, I was, I enjoy planting. So like, it's just, a, just another version of that, you know, just another pass out on the field. This gives us all something to think about. What do you do that you know is not good or effective, but still do it anyway, even though you know there's a better way? I continue to be fascinated by the soil, so I included this clip about the impact of tilling on the land. Because when you till, you also, it's kind of like, I'm trying to think of a good comparison, like a real life comparison, but so if you, because tilling kind of fluffs up the soil, mm-hmm. and then when you drive over it again, or, or, it, or it freezes down, it packs down almost even harder than it was before. Oh. You know, does that kind of make sense visually? Yeah, yeah. So, so it takes a while for that to, to mellow itself back out without tillage. Right. So it's almost like you're creating the need for tillage with tillage. Right. Is, is kind of my is how I look at it. And I, I think I've seen evidence of that even in our own fields where I've had to do a little bit of tillage for some reason. Right. So it's just about ignoring that, you know, not, not concerning yourself with that because it's going to sort itself out. And people always ask me, it's like, boy, do you think you're leaving any yield out there by not doing um, any form of tillage? And uh, I always say, I don't have any idea and I don't care. Because <laughs> I'm just not, gonna, I'm just not going to do it. So I know that I'm making, I'm making a good living doing it the way that I'm doing, and I'm proud of what I'm doing to promote soil health. I'm, I'm only going to do further things to promote soil health. I'm not going to go back to some kind of tillage program. There was a major controversy this summer about farmers losing their entire crop because of using a Roundup-resistant seed. Like all news today, there's no shortage of hyperbole. Roundup is a powerful weed killer. I didn't understand it, and I don't know how many other people felt the same way. So I decided to ask Hans about it. Hey, this whole thing is it Monsanto with the the pesticides? Has that hit your area? So, yeah. I mean, how 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 in depth do you want me to go into that? Yeah. Oh, you can go. You can go. <laughs> well, because that's a that's kind of a it's been making the news, but I don't know if people really completely understand what's going on there and the impact that has. Yeah, I'll say that I don't have any personal experience with it. I don't know anybody around here that's had any any issues with it. And I know that there are people around here that use, um, okay. So, so you're familiar with Roundup. Mm -hmm. So we have corn and soybean varieties that are resistant to Roundup. And so we can spray Roundup. It kills the weeds, doesn't kill the corn and soybeans, but, um, because of, um, genetic mutations in weeds, there are a couple of weeds that have developed resistance to Roundup. So they were looking for the next, big thing in terms of what could we put a resistance in corn and soybeans to that would that would you know weeds wouldn't be able to build a resistance to so dicamba is actually an old it's a pretty old pesticide but and the problem with it 
used to be that it had a like ability to drift so even on a calm day it could just it was so fine it would just kind of like spread out and go everywhere well they created this new formulation that doesn't drift it it falls just like a normal water-based chemical the, the theory that i've heard from most is that people would buy the seed with the resistance but then buy the old chemical and use it because they knew that it was resistant to it and so then that that old chemical would would do the thing that it always did which is drift and i i, I don't know why i think that's still for sale because it's like 2,4-D. it's like a like uh you know weed weed and feed killer for right. lawns and stuff like that so then of course it was drifting and killing the non dicamba resistant soybeans and other in other fields and okay but again i didn't have you know this is all just hearsay from not around here so no so, you don't know anybody in your area that's kind of been affected by that at all no In the next series of clips, we talk about chemical use in GMOs, genetically modified organisms. This can be a polarizing conversation which generates heated responses. I'm just inviting Hans to share his perspective as someone who works every day in the field and has a sense of fidelity towards farm practice. I mean, that is incredible to think that generationally how quick weeds can build up a resistance to something well i i mean it's kind of cool to be able to tell people that hey you know um because everybody's all against gmos which one of the main gmos is herbicide resistance in corn soybeans but if you can say and i don't know people probably don't care about the science behind it but it's something that you could breed into corn over time but it would take you know, many, many years as opposed to just being able to transplant that trade in. But then when you can say, Hey, look at this weed did it, did it on its own through many, many years of, of exposure. It's not, it's natural. You know I mean? It's, I mean, the chemicals aren't natural, but the, the process is, yeah. A GMOs, good thing, bad thing, necessary I think thing. I mean, I, I don't, uh, you know, somebody has a, a sound argument as to why they, why they're, anti-gmos i I'm, I'm happy to have a conversation about it but i i'm not afraid of scientific advancement in in food technologies you know to, tomatoes that can stay fresh longer when they're being shipped and i mean it's basically gmos is you know it's kind of a of a buzzword for being able to selectively breed without having to selectively breed. So you can, you can take the traits that you want and implant them and not have to go through the whole trial and error process. And the thing that you're, you're getting to is what I don't think a lot of people think about that. They, you, you also breed plants, whether you do it Mm -hmm. naturally intentionally, or they're going to do it on their own. You know, it's one of those things where I mean, there are only, I think it's like six different food products that can can even be gmo so like if you see non-gmo on a loaf of bread for example right that's just a marketing gimmick because there is no such thing as gmo wheat oh really yeah so i mean there there is no wheat that's resistant so technically they're right there's there's no gmo but i mean there there could be one right but in the sense that all bread you know it's kind of like when you see gluten-free on on popcorn it's like well 
duh, because there's no wheat and popcorn, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so I, I mean, I get, I, I find that stuff comical. I don't really get frustrated about it, but I, I do think it, it kind of, you know, if you want to get into the whole facts don't matter culture that we seem to be in, but you know, just I don't think that that kind of stuff really helps much when you're talking about that because if it's not exactly misinformation, but it's, it's kind of misleading marketing because it's, it's like creating a demon that doesn't exist. You know, it's exactly. Listening to Hans, random thoughts came to my head. Like, I wonder how many farmers don't believe in evolution, but watch it happen every day. Or how many people proclaim, I believe in science, but protest genetically manufactured foods. More importantly, he made me think about how much we demonize people or entities, sometimes creating demons where they don't even exist. I asked Hans what were his concerns about the market looking into the future. The market dictates what the facts are and what what people want to consume. So I would say that, yeah, that that's an issue. I think the going, the herbicide issue is, is a concern too, because of these weeds developing resistance. I think that's going to be a major issue in the next, in the next few years. I try to take a step back and, and think about what I'm doing from a, from a consumer's point of view okay. sometimes. And like, does a consumer want to hear about, the chemicals that I'm spraying, do they care if it's, you know, cause I can say, well, it's only, you know, three quarters of an ounce per acre or something, but does that really matter? Does it make any difference? You know what I mean? If it's, do you think it does or they don't care? I don't think that, you know, I just think people are either okay with chemicals or averse to them. I don't, I don't know if the, the amount really matters all that much, Right. but it's kind of interesting because GMOs were developed to quell environmental concerns and now they seem to be the environmental concern so it's almost like this thing has come full circle right because i mean we had uh herbicide or no it was an insecticide and it killed birds right um i forget what it was called so then they, they developed seeds that were resistant to the insects that they were trying to kill with that. Was that the insecticides that were killing the bald eagle population too? It was infecting the the smaller birds and then the bald eagles were eating the, yeah. Right. So so they developed this, you know, rootworm resistance in, in corn. <clears throat> and now that's like the evil thing because they think that, well, a corn that can kill a rootworm obviously has some bad stuff in it. You know, right. but they don't even know what it is. It's right. like a, it's a protein that targets something very specific in a rootworm that has nothing to do with the biology of a human being. But I mean, I could talk about that. So I was blue in the face and it just doesn't make any difference because right. it's a, it's a seed that kills a bug. So it's obviously bad. Do national politics, do you have to stay up on that? Are those things influencing anything that you do? Oh, I mean, yeah, they're of incredible importance. I mean, uh, when he was talking really tough on China, I was, I was nervous. I mean, it, you know, it's never going to be world ending news, but it's, it's, uh, well, 
Not from a. <laughs> I mean, what do I know? I don't know. <laughs> it could be, but let's hope not. Okay. I just mean when he, you know, when he softened his tone a little bit on, on, you know, maybe we weren't get, had such a bad trade agreement with China. I thought, you know, right. because they buy a lot of corn from us. You know, I mean, you know, some massive amount, five hundred billion metric tons or something. You know, whatever it is per year. Right. And. You know, if we piss them off, they might say, hey, we're only going to buy from Brazil or we're going to tie it. We're going to tear into our stockpiles for a while. You know, I mean, they, they have huge stocks of grain over there for for some reason. I mean, I, there's a lot of things I don't understand about communism, but I'm really happy that he has softened on uh, at least on, you know, uh, selfishly. I'm happy that he's softened on trade arguments because i i think you know kind of like your technology thing it's how how could we possibly scale back from how global the economy has become right maybe we can but it, it to me it seems like such a you know we're, we're all purchasing things that were made in in other countries right. every day right and we depend on I don't know how many foreign buyers for things that are produced in the United States for massive amounts of our of our GDP. So it's Do you ever think of your job in in terms of your faith? Do you ever make a connection between those two? Actually when I when I talked earlier about the the stewardship issue, um you know, uh, being no-till and, and caring for the land. I do think about the, uh, not necessarily a, like a spiritual connection to the land necessarily, but uh, um, kind of the spirituality of, of, of being a good steward of the blessings that have been bestowed upon me. I'm pretty self-aware that I, you know, I was born into into affluence and i'm had the opportunity to work my way into a business that some people would would probably kill to have the opportunity to do and um so i try to be both a steward of that gift and then also to try to use the the time that i have outside of farming to and resources to to give back to either you know the church or different causes and things like that so i spent the longest time trying to figure out what to do with this interview it wasn't until i had listened to it about 10 times i found the core here in this closing statement it's all about stewardship hans is all about stewardship a good steward manages well the gifts and talents entrusted to their care. If you were to re-listen to his thoughts, you would hear the theme of stewardship pulsing through everything he said. The idea of a farmer was not compelling to him. Using farming to have a positive impact on the world was. Obsessing on farming and using all of his time towards it was almost offensive to Hans. He wants to be sure he is managing his time well. In all expressions of life, farm family, church, community. Even when we were talking about pesticides and GMOs, 
I heard him expressing a concern about what is the best practice and how can we produce effectively and faithfully. All of a sudden, the parable of the talents came to mind. If you want to look it up, it's Matthew 25, verses 14 through 35. In the parable, a landowner entrusts the care of his property to three different workers. Each worker receives some money to work with when the owner is away. One receives five coins, the other two, and the third receives one coin. When the landowner returns, the workers come to him and show him what they have done in his absence. The first two workers double the money they were given. The third buried the money in the ground and did nothing with it. The first two receive praise and blessing. The third is chastised and condemned. People tend to focus on how unfair God is to the one worker in the parable. Some say cruel and manipulative. But Hans has me thinking differently about this story. Just because you're a farmer doesn't mean you're a good steward of the land, nor does it make you any more honorable than any other profession. Just because you work in a church does not automatically mean you are more faithful than others or that you have an honor simply by your profession. We are all given gifts, and we are all invited to be good stewards of the gifts we are given. I've noticed in my life, those who choose to be good stewards, compassionate, servant-minded, loving and patient, find an abundant life overflowing with blessings, even in the midst of difficulty. Those who don't often find weeping and gnashing of teeth, not in the afterlife, but here and now. So today I invite you to discover an abundant life by being a good steward of the gifts God entrusted to your care. That's our show. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to thank Hans for sharing. And I want you to check out the website, OrdinaryVoices.org, to follow along. Until we talk again, remember, there is more joy in serving than being served, more life and love than hate, and patience is key to understanding. If you like what you heard, please share it with a friend. This is a listener-supported show, so if you enjoyed it, please consider financially supporting it by clicking the Donate button on the website ordinaryvoices.org. Now on behalf of all Ordinary Voices, thanks for listening, and I look forward to our next conversation.